through Genesis chapter 21. It's going to be verses 1 through 34. But because it's 34 verses, I'm not going to make you stand. In fact, I'm not going to read it up front because that would take 10 minutes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. We're going to get into the sermon, but I promise you in the course of the sermon, all 34 verses will be read and they will be explained. Um, I just know if I read them up front, it will be an hour and 20 minute long sermon. And <laughs> so let's go to our Lord and uh, in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for your word that we're able to gather together really in shalom and peace where we're, we're able, we're not being hunted down by the authorities, at least not yet. Uh, we're able to preach in a, a church building that's designated as a church building and we're able to sing loud. We're able to use voice amplification and, and um, just all this good stuff. And may we not take it for granted because there's a lot of Christians who don't get to do this as easily or as freely as we can. I pray, Lord, for anybody that, that's watching that maybe has fallen into a stupor of, of laziness or just love of comfort, that they would be awakened from that. Because the, the corporate gathering of the saints is one of the most important things we get to do each week. It's where we see the ordinary means of grace. So uh, I just pray, Lord, that you would, you would gather more people to um, the Sunday evening uh, service that we have. And Lord, when it comes to this word, I pray that you would just give us eyes to see and ears to hear um, and hearts to receive what's in your word, that you would remove me as much as possible. As we look at Abraham, we see so much. We see, God, that you are the promise keeper, which is the, the title of the sermon. And so, Lord, um, have me teach your word well tonight. Have me not mess it up. Have your people be encouraged and shaped by your word and that they would trust you more. And if there's anybody that doesn't know you, Lord, we pray that they would come to know you and be saved today. And so we just pray all of this to you, and we pray that you'll be glorified, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray all of this. Amen. Uh, Please have a seat for those who are standing. All right, I'll just start with a, a quick question. How many people in here have been given a promise got their hopes up only to have the person not come through so you end up disappointed. All of us, right? (laughs) It really discourages us when that happens, doesn't it? But let me ask it from the other side. How many of us have been given a promise, got our hopes up only to have the person fulfill the promise? I'm sure we've all experienced that as well. Some people actually do keep their promises. And when they do, it feels great. It builds your confidence in them. There are some people that I will never do business with because they rarely follow through on their word, and I just cannot trust them. There are others that I've known for a very long time that I would trust them with everything that I have because they consistently keep their word. Well, I say that as an analogy because God is the ultimate promise maker, but far more importantly, he's the ultimate promise keeper. And so we should trust him. We should entrust all of ourselves, every part of ourselves to God. We will see his promise making and keeping in our text this evening. Because now in 21, I mean, the suspense has been building up, but in Genesis 21, God finally keeps the big promise that he made to Abraham all those years ago. He finally does it. And this certainly impacts Abraham's faith and the way that he lives. And it'll be obvious when we look closely at it. Abraham's confidence in God grows. And it's the same with us. And and I'll try to point that out as we go along. So as we look at our text, I I, want to let you know the main point for you note takers is really simple. God keeps his promises. Nothing too complicated there. No Hebrew thrown at you. God just keeps his promises. Now, specifically in our text, 
We will see God keep his promises to Abraham by highlighting two events in his life. The first is the birth of Isaac. I mean, that's the big one. That's the big promise being kept. But we're also going to see God keep promises in the second event, which is the covenant with Abimelech. And we'll see all that when we go through this. We have to remember, back in chapter 12, when everything started with Abraham, God promised him three things, blessing, descendants, and land. And we're going to see all of that at play in this chapter. But we're also going to see problems that arise. And to those those problems as they arise against the promises, we're still going to see God's faithfulness in it all. And that should increase our faithfulness. So as we continue with the story of Abraham, we need to realize we have now come to the climax of Abraham's account. And what do I mean by that? Well, the promise that Abraham wanted more than any other promise is now at last fulfilled. Abraham has been waiting 25 years. I mean, sink your minds around that. 25 years. When God made this promise to him, he was a 75-year-old man, and God said, you will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now, keep in mind, God promised this to a man who was well past the childbearing age, and he was married to a woman well past the childbearing age, and they had not yet had any kids. Yet God makes an impossible promise. Why? Because with God, the impossible becomes possible. Our first seven verses will prove that. And, and some people might say, well, how do we know this actually happened? Well, first off, the Bible says it happened, and the Bible's the word of God. So that should be enough. But you could add to it my own existence. I personally am a physical descendant of this fulfilled promise. In other words, if this didn't happen, I wouldn't be here. There would be nobody standing here. You would just be staring at a wall behind me, okay? And I wouldn't be here, and neither would the millions of Jews that exist. The fact that we exist proves this account is true. This is where we came from. So God is amazing. He fulfills his promises. Now, when we look at the life of Abraham... He has not always been unwavering in these 25 years. His faith has had ups and downs. But I want to start with his good moments because I want to review chapter 12 all the way to now. His good moments. By faith, he left his country and moved to the land that God promised. By faith, he saved his nephew Lot and he attacked mighty kings from the east and slaughtered their armies. And he did this only with 300 men by his side. By faith, he believed that God's promise of a son and land, he believed it, and so he received the covenant in chapter 15. By faith, he circumcised himself as a 99-year-old man and all the other males in his house upon God's command. By faith, Abraham interceded with God on behalf of some wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And what that shows is that through Abraham, God truly would bless the nations because he's interceding for the nations. By faith, Abraham, at various points in times, he would build altars next to trees throughout the land of Israel, and he worshiped God in those places as a throwback to the Garden of Eden. Abraham apparently understood that God was beginning to reverse the curse that came through Adam, and Abraham realized that this begins with him. So yes, indeed, Abraham had great moments of faith, but Abraham also had despicable moments of failure. In Egypt, he lied about his wife, saying she was his sister. This made Pharaoh take her as a wife, and the Hebrew certainly implies that this made both Pharaoh and Sarah adulterers. That the Hebrew implies they they did what married people do. And she couldn't stop it, because Abraham didn't protect her. 
When God later, uh, another failure, when God later reaffirmed that he's going to keep the promise. In chapter 15, hey, Abraham, I'm going to keep the promise. Abraham responded to God at the beginning of chapter 15. What can you give me, God? I have no heir. That was a very faithless statement, I think, um, although he's, he's asking God to intercede. And so then God makes a covenant to make it 100% certain that this was going to happen. And so you think he'd be like, yeah. But then in the next chapter, he and his wife conspire to take matters into their own hands, and they bring a third woman into their marriage, Hagar, which is going to cause all sorts of drama. When Sarah then pressures Abraham to send this woman and the unborn child out to the wilderness, which would be totally unjust, Abraham doesn't do the right thing. He listens to the voice of his wife and sends her off to exile. When God then sends her back, fixing Abraham's mistake, she gives birth to this son, Ishmael, and is great. He's a son, but he's not the son. He's not the one that God had promised all along. He's not the promised one. And so then God reassures Abraham with the covenant again in chapter 17. He says, at this time next year, Sarah's going to have a kid. Do you remember Abraham's response? He laughs and says, oh, Lord, if it would just be Ishmael. Think about that. God says, I'm about to give this to you. And he says, just let Ishmael be the chosen one. In other words, I'm tired of these promises. I'm tired of waiting. I have a son now. Choose him. Bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. However, Abraham might have said it. But then God tells him, no, it is going to be through your wife, Sarah, that you will give birth to a son and you will name him Isaac. This is the chosen one. And so, of course, Abraham gets pumped up. He obeys the command of circumcision. God tells him this is going to happen in one year. So you think Abraham would be like, you know, in Cloud City here. But what does he do right after? He goes to Philistine territory and lies again and says, this is my sister. And then Abimelech takes her as a wife when God is saying in one year you're going to have a kid. This could have put the whole thing in jeopardy. Okay, and so pretty much... God had to intervene again and save Abraham and Sarah from Abraham's faithlessness. That's what we saw last time in chapter 20. Chapter 20 was probably, in my opinion, the most depressing chapter of Abraham's behavior. He failed with the same sin that he did 25 years earlier in Egypt, but I think his attitude was even worse. Because when he was called out on it, he gave excuses that sounded very similar to Adam's excuses in the garden. He's supposed to be the one where God's starting to reverse what happened with Adam, but he's sounding just like him. And so again, I went over all of that. But despite Abraham's failures, God was still gracious. Why? Because of election. Abraham was still God's chosen guy. And because of that, even though Abraham did wrong, Abimelech had to ask Abraham to pray for him to, for the healing of his people, which is very interesting. Now, I bring all of this up for two reasons. First, I wanted to review everything we've seen since chapter 12. We needed to be reminded of what we've already studied so that we could understand what we're seeing and in, 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 we could understand the immediate context of our text tonight. And second, I want you to see that righteous Abraham is not perfectly righteous. Abraham sometimes acts in great faith and at other times he gives in to sin. Sometimes he does not waver and fully believes that God will fulfill what he promises. You know, he'll fulfill the promise he made all those years ago. But other times, the same Abraham wavers and doubts. And I bring that up to ask us, isn't that just like us? Isn't it just like us? 
And that should not be surprising because the New Testament, especially with Romans and Galatians, and Pastor John's been showing this in Galatians lately, those books make it clear that Abraham is the paradigm or the pattern for how we understand our own salvation. In Genesis 15, 6, it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, he was declared righteous. He was justified by faith and we are saved the same way. But even after we're justified by faith, Abraham still had to grow in righteousness, right? He had to learn how to live increasingly in a way that matches God's declaration. And so many tests came his way. Some tests he hid out of the park. Others, the man struck out and he struck out bad. But in it all, God was still with him. And even when we act faithless at times, God is still faithful because he cannot deny himself. God will get us to the finish line. And so it's my hope that as we study the life of Abraham, we could see that God really does have a good reason for making us wait. Just like he had a good reason for making Abraham wait. God really has a good reason for putting us in situations that seem hopeless and seem deadly. You want to know why? God knows what he's doing. He knows what it takes to build our faith. And so I think the life of Abraham shows us the truth of Proverbs 13, 12. Here's what it says. It says, hope delayed makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And I think we all understand this. As we have to wait a long time for God's promises, sometimes the heart does get sick. But when God fulfills what he promised, it is like a tree of life. It just is. When God fulfills all the promises he has made to us, it will end with us being back in God's presence with access to the tree of life. It will be so amazing. Well, for the life of Abraham, having a son through his wife, Sarah, that was the desire fulfilled. That was the tree of life for him. It was the fulfilled promise of descendants. So with that, let's look at the promise fulfilled and see what's going on. In verses 1 through 7, we're going to see the promise fulfilled. But then in verses 8 through 21, we're going to see the promise threatened. Okay, And in these, we're going to see Abraham presented with another really big test of faith. So let's first start with verses 1 through 7 and see the promise fulfilled. In verse 1, Moses writes this. He says, The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Now, I want, to notice, I want you to notice that two times it says the Lord did something. First, it says he came to Sarah as he said, and then it says he did for her what he promised. And what this is referring to is God said, at this time next year, you're going to have a baby. So three months after that promise was made, God heals her reproductive system, because she was in her 90s, and he allowed Abraham to get her pregnant. And then God will carry that baby full term for nine, that full nine months so that the promise would be fulfilled at the exact time God said it would. God came to Sarah and he did what he had promised. Now, the mentioning of the Lord's action twice here is to emphasize that this is all God's doing. It is meant to emphasize God's faithfulness. Remember, in the last chapter, Abraham was not Faithful, and yet God right here is still faithful to Abraham. When God fulfills his promises, it has nothing to do with us being good people because we are not good people. Instead, it has everything to do with God just being good. That's why he fulfills his promises. The Lord is kind. 
Now, verse 2 tells us the result of his kindness, the result of him visiting Sarah and fulfilling the promise. It says, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. Again, this emphasizes the appointed time that God promised. It also calls our attention to Abraham's age so that it would be clear that this is a miracle baby. Apart from a miracle, a 100-year-old man does not have babies. Okay, This takes an act of God. Now, next in verses 3 and 4, it shows us that Abraham is being faithful to God here. Remember, a year earlier, back in chapter 17, God told him you have to name the child Yitzhak, or Isaac, which means laughter. And then God says to all your physical heirs, your males, they must be circumcised on the eighth day. So in light of what God commanded a year before, let's look at what Abraham does. Verses 3 and 4. It says, Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. And just to remind us one more time that this was a miracle, look at verse 5. It says, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now, why does God do things this way? Why make Abraham wait until he's 100 years old to get the son of promise? It's because God gets all the glory. A 100-year-old Abraham cannot take credit for that. And the enemies of God's people can't say Isaac was the illegitimate son of a younger guy like Abimelech because Sarah was 90. So it makes it clear that if God is going to create a nation by which all the nations of the earth will be saved, then God's going to do it in such a way that no one could deny that this nation's existence itself is a miracle. And it just is. And if God then is going to bring the Savior of humanity into the world through that miracle nation, then again, God wants the whole world to know that this is all his doing. Abraham waiting, and I know this is going to sound messed up, but Abraham waiting 25 years for all of this is a small price to pay if God gets the glory. Abraham waiting 25 years is a small price to pay if God for the next 4,000 years uses this example to strengthen our faith. Okay, so that's just what it comes down to. And sometimes you're going to have to wait. Sometimes you're going to have to suffer so that future generations will look at your example and be inspired and strengthened by it and encouraged. And that's a small price to pay, even if it doesn't feel like it. It is. But getting back to the text, Sarah is elated. In verse 6, it says this, Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. Now, I think we could understand her joy. Most mothers are really happy when they see their babies for the first time. Imagine waiting 90 years. When God first told Sarah that he would do this, she laughed in sinful sarcasm. God rebuked her for that laugh. And now God turned that bad laughter into good laughter. It's not sarcastic anymore. It's joyous. It's happy. She is laughing and she wants everyone who hears to laugh with her in a happy laugh. And indeed, what's his name? Isaac. Laughter. Through him, God redeemed a bad laugh and he turned it into a good laugh. God does this kind of stuff all the time. He, he, he redeems our stupidity. What an amazing, amazing God we serve. Now, Sarah joyfully says more. Look at verse 7. She also said, 
Who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne a son for him in his old age. See, she's acknowledging the unbelievable nature of this whole thing. She's like, I'm 90 years old and I'm nursing a child. A child from my own womb. A child from Abraham's 100-year-old loins. I mean, this is amazing. And it's worth remembering because Sarah's obviously having a good moment here. She's being very faithful here. But she's had some bad moments in Genesis as well. It was her idea to bring a second woman into their marriage. It was her idea to sarcastically laugh at God when he made this promise. That wasn't a good look. But now look at her. The promise is fulfilled. She is filled with joy. Now that God gave her what was promised, notice that she isn't bitter. Notice what she's not saying. She's not saying, you know... God wasted my whole life. Why not give me kids when I was young so that I could have grandkids by now? Why make us wait to where Abraham twice caused me to be coveted by other men and I caused him to take another woman into our marriage? Now you're giving us a kid, God, after all that when we're old? Now you think this is going to make everything nice and neat as if all that other stuff didn't happen? See, that's what a better person would say. But praise God, that's not what Sarah said. See, a bitter heart is an evil heart. And Sarah is showing us here what it looks like not to hold on to that malignant kind of thinking. Instead of bitter thinking, she's like, wow, I have a son that I can nurse. And Abraham is the father. Who would have ever thought, please, everyone laugh with me. Enter my joy. Whatever happened to me before seems so insignificant now. Thank you, God, for answering this prayer. That's a heart of faith. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because there are times when a Christian spouse is so angry at his or her spouse for all the things that have been done wrong over the years. Maybe a wife is mad that a husband doesn't seem to care about the word or doesn't lead the family or is an immature man boy. Maybe he neglects her. And so she prays, God, change him. And when God finally does, she's angry that God made her wait. I've noticed this too many times. She grumbles about all the wasted years. She resents her husband. She clings to the bitterness, even though she was praying for the change. She never stopped to think that God makes us wait for a reason, that God has a reason for it all, and that that time is never wasted in God's economy. God made Abraham wait 25 years. And notice, people don't think about how offended God is by our bitterness Israel cried for deliverance, for freedom from Egypt for 400 years. And when God delivered them, they grumbled. That generation did not make it into the promised land. We are supposed to pay attention to things like this in the Bible. And listen, just to be fair, the same is true for a husband who's angry at his wife. Maybe she's not submissive. Maybe she doesn't keep the house clean. Perhaps she doesn't care about spiritual things. Maybe she spends money faster than the husband can make it. Or perhaps she's vain and only cares about her looks and hobbies while ignoring the needs of the kids. Or maybe she did the opposite and physically let herself go and then she nags all the time. Well, husband, are you going to be bitter if God finally changes her heart? Will you be angry that this didn't happen when you were young? Or like Sarah, will you have such a heart of thanksgiving to where all you could do is laugh with joy and encourage others to celebrate with you? That is what the Christian heart is like. And so I'm hoping that's good food for thought. As I was reading about Sarah, it really made me think about that. Like this, this rebukes bitterness big time. Because if anybody had, you would think would have a cause for bitterness, it would be Sarah. 
But we're not seeing that here. So indeed, for Abraham and Sarah, the promise is fulfilled. But now Moses is going to turn our attention to the fact that there is a natural threat to the promise. And we'll see that in verses 8 through 21. You see, there's another son, Ishmael. When Sarah was wrong and impatient all those years earlier, she pressured Abraham to have a child with her Egyptian slave, Hagar. And this created a consequence. That child is now a rival to the child of promise. And keep in mind, this is a time where rivaling heirs had a really bad habit of making the other heirs have unfortunate accidents. And so it is not a safe situation to have a baby or a toddler and yet a teenage boy as a rival in the same house. Not safe, not wise. So let's look at this situation a little closer. I figure what we'll do is we'll quickly go through the narrative and then pull from it the themes that God wants us to see. Verse 8 introduces for us, well, it starts the, this part of the narrative, and we're going to see the problem when we get to verse 9. But let's look at verse 8 first. It says, The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. Now, ancient sources tell us that children were weaned around three years old. That's a lot older than we wean kids today. Um, usually you have kids eating solid as soon as they get teeth. They're like one years old. They're like, all right, you're ready, kid. But back then it wasn't that way. They would wait until about three years old. Because if you could actually wean a child, it was something to celebrate. The infant mortality rate back then was so high and so heartbreaking that many children were never weaned. They didn't make it. But if your child makes it to three years old and is weaned, the kid's going to make it. He's going to be okay. And so parents would then put on a party for this, like my kid has made it. And so they would celebrate it. And so it's been three years, let's just assume that, since they were happy about the birth. Three years later, here's another chance for Abraham and Sarah to celebrate God's faithfulness to them. But verse 9 is where we see the promise uh, or the, the problem emerge. Moses tells us this in verse 9. He says, But Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham. Now, you might be wondering, what is the big deal about this? Well, there's a couple things to point out here. First, I just want to point this out, which is kind of interesting, that for the rest of the account, Ishmael is never named. He is always, henceforth, called the son of the slave. Sarah calls him the son of the slave. God calls him the son of the slave. And then Moses, as he's narrating, just calls him the boy. So never once is he named in this chapter. Now there's a reason for that. The text is going out of its way to make it clear that Ishmael is not the heir of Abraham. So much so they won't even say his name in this chapter. That's how much God wants that point driven across. So the Muslims got this wrong because they tried to say that Ishmael's the heir. No, God won't even let his name be said in this chapter. Second thing to note is it makes it clear that the boy was still, quote, born to Abraham. It says that the one Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham. So he was Abraham's son before Isaac. That's a key as to why this is a threat, because in ancient law, a man's firstborn son normally would be the heir. So Ishmael being there is a problem. And then third, it tells us he was mocking Isaac. This is not a situation of two boys close to the same age trash talking each other. Remember, Ishmael was 13 years old a year before Isaac was born. It tells us he was, he was 13 when he got circumcised. And that was a year before Isaac was born. So if Isaac's born a year later 
and then he's weaned after three years. That means Ishmael is about 17 years old. He is nearly a man. Now, they weren't considered men until they were 20 back then, but he's close. So he'd still be called a boy or a lad, but he's a man boy at this point. And the Hebrew word for mocking here, this is the word for laughing. It's no accident that Moses uses this word because Isaac's name means laughter. But we know there's good laughter like Sarah's that we just saw. And we know there's bad laughter. Okay, Ishmael's mocking laughter was not good laughter. Also, it's worth noting, but I don't think there's a lot of weight to this. Some scholars point out that the verb tense for this word mocking also sometimes refers to sexual abuse. And so they might say that's what Ishmael was doing. And when Sarah saw that, it's like, all right, he's got to go. I don't think there's enough in the text to lead to that conclusion, though in the Hebrew it is a possibility. Likely, what we are seeing is Ishmael is mocking the one that God declared to be the heir. Okay, he know, Everybody knows this is the child of promise, but Ishmael is mocking the child of promise. He's laughing in a wicked way at the one that should bring good laughter. And so by doing that, he's laughing at God. Because God's the one who made the promise. And I don't know. I mean, could you imagine like just hating your little brother and mocking him? Because he's technically his little brother. Shouldn't he be doting on him and loving him? But he's not. He's mocking him. He's mocking God's promise. He's mocking his dad's joy. Because Abraham is elated. So here you have this 17-year-old. He's likely looking at this toddler tripping over his own feet, barely able to eat real food, and he's thinking, this little punk is going to be my boss? I don't think so. When in reality, he should be thinking, that's my little punk. Anybody messes with him, they got to mess with me. But that's not what Ishmael's thinking. That's not what he's thinking. He is looking with derision on his brother. And so, and Paul, just to let you know, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 4, he's going to use these two mothers, Sarah and Hagar, and the two boys, Isaac and Ishmael, he's going to use them as an allegory or a type. You know, this event really happened, but he's going to say, let me make an analogy with what happened in history. Let me compare these women and their sons to real believers and legalists that are bothering the Galatians. And Pastor John will explain all this when he gets to Galatians chapter 4. But the bottom line is the legalists were persecuting those who were saved by faith. And Paul says that's what Ishmael was doing to Isaac. If you look at Galatians 4.29, he says, But just as then the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one, that was born as the result of the Spirit. So also now, meaning the same things happening to real Christians from the legalists. And so that lets us know that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's telling us that this mocking was actually more than just laughter. It was more than just an insult. It was a threat, a threat to where Paul uses the word persecution. So this means the promise is under threat. We've seen this kind of thing already. The older brother Cain kills Abel. We will see later that Esau will have plans to kill his brother Jacob. And after that, we'll see Jacob's older sons plan to kill his younger son, Joseph. When older brothers hate the weaker and younger brother, there's a, the threat is a true threat. Okay, That's what Genesis shows us. And this explains why Sarah is going to respond the way that she does. Look at verse 10. It says, So she said to Abraham, Drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. Now, I know that sounds harsh, 
But Paul quotes favorably, he actually quotes Sarah favorably in Galatians 4.30. Okay, he's going to quote her favorably and apply that to the legalists, cast them out, right? And so Sarah sees the clear threat here. Now, her words are harsh. Rather than calling Hagar by her name, she calls her by her class, the slave. Rather than acknowledging that Hagar's son is truly Abraham's son, she calls him the son of this slave. She says that this slave's son, quote, will not be co-heir with my son Isaac. Now, because of this, some commentators think that Sarah's main concern is that of social class, that a slave son can't be equal to the son of a free woman and first wife. But I really don't think that's what's going on here. Sarah's words are in response to Ishmael mocking Isaac. That's why she says this. It has nothing to do with class. She understood that there was a threat posed to Isaac. She was trying to protect the child of promise. I think... And of course it's true because Paul and the Bible makes it clear her actions were justifiable. Now, at first, Abraham doesn't see it this way. Look at verse 11. It says, this was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. This really bothered him. For two decades, nearly 17 years, Ishmael was Abraham's only son. He sees him as a son and Sarah is essentially demanding that Abraham get rid of a son, a sacrifice of a son. Kind of sounds familiar. That's a foreshadowing of what's to come in the next chapter. Now, of course, Abraham's not being asked to kill Ishmael, but he's being asked to disown him as an heir. He's being asked to send Ishmael away, to make him not a son with any legal bearing, send him away, and you'll probably never see him again. That's a sacrifice. It's not killing him, but that's give up your son. Lose your son is what he's being asked to do. He wouldn't know what would become of Ishmael, most likely, if he gives in to this. So for very understandable reasons, Abraham's upset. He may have went along with Sarah back in 16, but this doesn't sound right to him. So he's like, no, this isn't right. He's distressed and he does not want to go along with it. And not only that, in ancient Near Eastern law, it was illegal to disown a son that was born to a slave. So if he actually does listen to her, that's going to make the surrounding society think he's a scumbucket. So there's all these things probably in Abraham's mind. But in this case, Sarah happens to be right. And God's going to tell Abraham this. Look at verse 12. Moses writes this. He says, But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Now, that's fairly straightforward. He's saying, Don't be upset about the slave or the boy. Like Sarah, again, it's interesting, God calls, does not name Hagar or Ishmael. And, and remember, God's promise to Abraham and about the blessing of the nations, it's through his seed, and that will only be traced through Isaac. Only Isaac's the child of promise. So to make that clear, God is using language to make it abundantly clear, as I said earlier, that Ishmael is not the child of promise. Now, it's interesting that God tells Abraham, he says, listen to the voice of your wife. Normally, this has been a bad thing in Genesis. Now, husbands don't use that. But, you know, in, in the Garden of Eden, God says, because you listen to the voice of your wife, cursed is the ground because of you. You know, and then in chapter 16, it says Abraham listened to the voice of his wife and they brought Hagar in. So normally, listening to the voice of his wife has been a bad thing. But here, God's saying, no, no, listen to the voice of your wife. 
Okay, so it kind of reverses it. Now, is God saying this because she's wise? No, it's not because there's this wisdom in her. It's because what she is saying here agrees with God. God says, listen to her because, whenever you see the word because, it's giving you the reason. Why should I listen to her? Because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Now, this calls Abraham back to what God said four years earlier in Genesis 17, verses 17 through 19. Even then, as I mentioned, when God announced that Isaac would be born to Sarah in a year and said, you were to name him Isaac, Abraham tried to tell God, no, just use Ishmael. Even then, he was trying to hold on to Ishmael instead of the child of promise. And listen, I don't want us to be mean to Abraham. I think it's understandable that he had a soft spot for his son here. But God said, no, it will be through Isaac. He said that all those years ago. Sarah's saying the same thing. And so then God is saying, listen to her because she's saying what I already told you. Now, my guess is Abraham was, he didn't want to send Ishmael away. Of course, Abraham agrees now he's holding Isaac. Of course, this is the child of promise. But can I have both? Can't Ishmael still be here as well? And I think Abraham was being naive. I think he was being naive thinking that they they would all just get along fine. But God, and the reason why we know Abraham's got to be wrong here is because God tells him to send Ishmael away. God is determined to protect the promise. We've already seen Abraham naive before as it relates to his managing of Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. He's made mistakes before. God's not going to let him be naive again. So he says, listen, listen to your wife, do what Sarah says. And God reassures him. He reassures him that Ishmael will be fine. If you look at verse 13, God says this. He says, and I will also make a nation of the slave's son because he's your offspring. In other words, look, Ishmael's not going to die, Abraham. Don't you believe that I could take care of him? Of course. Listen, he's your son. And because of that, I'm not going to let anything bad happen to him. He is going to be a nation. He will turn into many descendants like I promised you back in chapter 17. But even though I'm going to make him into a nation, the promise is through Isaac. So send him away. And I kind of want to go on a little rabbit trail just for a moment Because I find all of this very interesting. I don't know if you've noticed, but the book of Genesis describes Ishmael in terms almost identical to how it describes Isaac. You would almost think these guys are the same person. And what do I mean? Well, compare them. Both are children of Abraham. God promises to build a great nation out of both of them. Both nations will have 12 tribes. Kings and princes are promised to come from both of them. Both are circumcised by their father Abraham, and both get sacrificed in a sense. Ishmael in this chapter, and Isaac in the next chapter. And when Abraham sacrifices Ishmael by sending him away, Moses will tell us he rose early in the morning to do so. When Abraham's called to sacrifice Isaac in the next chapter, again it'll say Abraham rose early in the morning to do that. I don't think it's because Abraham's a morning guy. I think it's, you know, these textual clues are there for a purpose. In both instances, the angel of the Lord will appear. In both chapters, the, the, uh, both chapters, um, you're going to have a repeated promise of descendants. In this chapter, Hagar will open her eyes and see a well. In the next chapter, Abraham will open his eyes and see a ram caught in a thicket. 
Ishmael's sacrifice story ends. This chapter ends with him getting a wife. The Isaac sacrifice story in the next chapter ends with it identifying who his wife is going to be, Rebecca. So there are so many parallels here. What is my point in all of this? It's like Moses is describing them as if they're the same person except for one key thing that separates them. Isaac was born of the spirit and Ishmael was born of the flesh. Isaac was born due to a promise that God made where God had to miraculously cause that pregnancy to happen. Ishmael was born of just people meddling in the flesh. And, and, and Paul makes a point out of this in Romans 9. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 9, he says, Now, it's not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He quoted this passage, right? He says, that is, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Okay, so if you notice that, it quotes chapter 17 and chapter 21, but Paul is making a point here. The point isn't replacement theology like some people try to say. Well, not all Israel's is Israel. No, he's making the point that not all of Abraham's kids are truly his offspring in terms of the promise. Those who are born of the flesh are not heirs to the promise, but those who are born of the Spirit are. Moses is using the details of these two sons to teach us the truth of unconditional election. That's what these clues teach us, that God chooses his people based on the mystery of his will, and it's the fact that he chooses them that makes them the child of promise. Because look at Isaac and Ishmael. Two people could be the same in every single way. They could be great in all the ways that the world defines greatness. But at the end of the day, the most important thing about them is whether or not they are born again, born of the Spirit. If they're born again, if they're chosen of God, then they're the children of promise. If not, then they're like Ishmael. Very important thing that I think God wants us to get when we look closely at the text. But anyway, rabbit trail done. Getting back to the text, Abraham, he has a tough choice to make. Does he send away his first son? Does he trust God? We've seen Abraham waver before, but at this point in his life, we're now going to see that this man trusts God. Now he is walking fully by faith. Once Isaac was born and the promise of a son through Sarah was fulfilled, Abraham becomes a different guy. He just does. We will not see Abraham fail again for the rest of his life in Genesis. We've seen all these failures. Soon as Isaac is born, he he doesn't fail again. For the rest of his life, he's faithful. At the command of God, he will obey. Why? Well, if God could bring Isaac into the world through a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman, of course God could take care of Ishmael, and he could raise him up into a great nation. Once Abraham looked in Isaac's eyes and saw the faithfulness of God... The tests of life now start to seem a lot simpler than they once did. And in fact, I don't know if you've noticed this in your readings of Genesis, but after this promise was fulfilled, God's tests become way harder than anything Abraham has faced before. Way harder. And yet in each of them, henceforth, Abraham does not 
falter. I mean, think of this test. Think of what he's being asked to do right here, to send his 17-year-old son away and to disown him. That is harder than anything Abraham has faced at this point. That's harder than anything he's been asked. And what comes in the next chapter is even infinitely harder than that. But God fulfilling his promise by bringing Isaac into the world, that pushed Abraham over the top. So in verse 14, we see his obedience. He obeys. He sends away his son. Look at verse 14. It says, early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread and a water skin, put them on Hagar's shoulders, and sent her and the boy away. She left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, here it tells us he gives her and Ishmael some provisions so they would survive, and then he sends them away. And the word, the Hebrew word for send away is the word for divorce. He had to, even though Hagar was his slave, she did become a second wife. So to disinherit Ishmael, Abraham had to effectively divorce his mother, which makes Ishmael now an illegitimate son. And so I think it's okay and right for us to have some sympathy for Hagar here. Since remember what I said this morning, marriage was the social safety net for women, especially a slave. Well, she's on her own now. She doesn't have that social safety net. But the only thing that makes this right is God said, don't worry about it. I'll be the safety net. I promise you I will take care of them. And God does. And that's enough for Abraham. Again, he believes. And for sure, we do see God take care of them. Now, it's only after they reach the end of their rope. And sometimes God does that, so we will trust him more. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, when the water in the skin was gone... She left the boy under one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance about a bow shot away. For she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die. While she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. Now, I think this was no fault of Abraham, the fact that they're now dehydrated, because at the end of verse 14, it said he gave them provisions. Okay, and, and, and excuse me, at the end of verse 14, it says she wandered in the wilderness. He probably gave her enough provisions, but she starts wandering and doing figure eights throughout the desert. That's not his fault. He can't see her anymore. If you wander, you're going to run out of supplies. And when that happens, she then dumps her nearly dead son, probably of dehydration, in some bushes, and she doesn't want to see him suffer. So she goes away and she cries loudly. Now, there are some people who just try to make a big big uh, deal out of the fact that, she, well, she didn't pray to God here. She just wept. And honestly, I don't think Moses is trying to get us to see anything bad in Hagar here. She's, she's sad over the state of affairs. Wouldn't you be? If you saw your son dying of dehydration, wouldn't you go sit maybe a little bit away and cry? I, I don't know why. There's this faithfulness, faithlessness of Hagar. I'm like, come on, man. You know, get a life. So, well, I don't know the priority. Any, anyhow, but God made a promise, right? He made a promise. He always keeps his promises. So in verses 17 and 18, he's not going to let them die. It says, God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up, help the boy up and grasp his hand for I will make him a great nation. So from heaven, God speaks to her in the form of the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord talks in such a way that it shows us he is the Lord. 
Okay, this is a, a, a theophany, or as Pastor John was talking about last week, a theophany or a Christophany, we could debate that. But either way, this is God appearing in some sort of form, and he's speaking to her. And this isn't the first time. He did this for Hagar in chapter 16, and here he calls her by name. He's like, Hagar, well, well what are you afraid about? What's wrong? You know, open your eyes. The boy's going to be all right. Get up. He's not going to die. I'm going to make him into a nation, a great nation. Now, God says it, but he knows she also needs to see it. And so in verse 19, it says this. It says, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well. So she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. Now, apparently that well was in front of her eyes to be the whole time, but despair blinded her to it. So God opens her eyes and she's able to see it and he keeps his promises. And given that there's this well and it already told us this was in Beersheba, this is going to be connected to the next part of our text. This is the well of Beersheba that uh, God opened her eyes and saved Ishmael. Now in verses 20 and 21, Moses lets us know that Ishmael does in fact turn out exactly like he said. God says, it says this, God was with the boy. I can't believe some people try to minimize that. Well, it doesn't really mean he was with them. What does this mean? God was with the boy and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Listen, the most important words in that passage was God was with the boy. God kept his promise to Abraham. And what's interesting is the boy grows up to now be the master of the desert that almost killed him. Very interesting. And he became a renowned archer to where everybody knew he's like the Legolas of that time. And that would definitely be something that would be helpful for a man choosing to live the life of a Bedouin. And then it ends by telling us Hagar found a wife for him in Egypt. And from that marriage, God fulfills the promise that a nation will be born. So indeed, this promise was fulfilled to Ishmael, the one that God made, but even more so, the promise of Isaac was fulfilled and the threat to that promise was now nullified. And yet it was nullified in a way where Ishmael turns out just fine. And yet Isaac is also able to grow up in safety so that he could receive the promises. Okay, now I mentioned that back in chapter 12, God promised Abraham blessing, seed or descendants and land. We've seen here God fulfill the seed or descendant blessing. Well, there's also the promise of, of blessing in land. Um, and we're going to see that in the next part of the text. God has been blessing Abraham this entire time. And in the rest of the chapter, we'll see that continue. Because Abraham doesn't have the land yet. He's going to be a pilgrim and a sojourner his whole life. But he lives in a way here that anticipates that the land will be his one day. So now we turn to a very peculiar interaction between Abraham and Abimelech. And some people comment that it seems strange that this, this story here, this, this event, is placed between the Ishmael and Isaac stories. But Moses gives us so many clues here that it makes sense that it's here. First, what we're about to read has a lot of parallels with what we just read in the first part of the chapter. Both describe a scene of conflict, one over a boy and the next one over a well. In both instances, Abraham loses something, again, a boy in a well. Both events have a complaint raised against an innocent bystander. Both have Abraham giving gifts and provisions to someone. And ultimately, both give us the origin of Beersheba. 
These are supposed to go together. And Beersheba ends up being the southernmost point of the future kingdom of Israel. So this is all here for a reason. And so with that, and again, this, that's why I'm saying it now ties to the land promise. So let's take a quick look at this. In verse 22, we read this. It says, At that time, Abimelech, accompanied by Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now, as a reminder, let me just tell us who these people are again. Abimelech is the king or chief of the Philistines. Abraham has been sojourning in his land for a while. Now, back in chapter 20, Abraham lied about Sarah. Abimelech took her into his harem. But then God instantly struck the whole kingdom's reproductive system. And then he threatened the king in a dream. He's like, you're a dead man. You took another man's wife. Abimelech's like, whoa, I didn't know, right? And God moved so quick because he wanted to make sure that nothing compromised the, the conception of, of Isaac, okay? And so pretty much Abimelech declares his innocence. God accepts his word. Abraham prays that God would heal the kingdom of its barrenness, and God does. And so Abimelech knows that even though Abraham was shady, because this was about four years before our text now, Abimelech knows that even though Abraham was shady at times, God's still with this guy. God answers his prayers, again, because election is unconditional. Well, now a few years have transpired since that event, and Abimelech has had more time to observe how God constantly blesses Abraham with more and more wealth. So he takes his general, Phicol, and he approaches Abraham to make a covenant. He understands, this pagan understands that the nations are blessed through Abraham, and so he wants to be on good terms with Abraham. As I said last time, even though he's a pagan, Abimelech is a wise king. So he looks at Abraham, he says, God is with you in everything you do. So because of that, he makes a request in verse 23, if you look at it. He says, swear to me by God here and now that you will not break an agreement with me or my children and descendants. As I have been loyal to you, so you will be loyal to me and to the country where you are a resident alien. Now, what he's asking for here is a very common ancient Near Eastern custom. It's when an inferior seeks the blessing of a superior. And even though this guy's got a kingdom and an army, because God's with Abraham, he sees Abraham as his superior. So he is seeking this treaty with them, and he brings his general as a witness, which we also find in other parallel ancient Near Eastern treaties. Like, hey, my general's here as a witness. So this is all exactly what you would expect. And Abimelech's request is very specific. He says, quote, as I've been loyal to you, so you will be loyal to me, end quote. The Hebrew word for loyal is chesed, which we say a lot. And it's one of the most, it probably is the most important word in the Bible. It means so many things, but ultimately it means absolute loyalty, faithfulness, and loving kindness. God is the God of chesed. He gives us that compassion, that grace, that faithfulness, that loyalty. Um, and so Abimelech knows that God's given that to Abraham. And he says, look, I'm willing to give that same loyalty to you, Abraham, because I think your God will bless me. But I'm asking you to also be loyal to me. Now, I think Abimelech is bringing up this treaty because he has no reason or he has a good reason to not trust Abraham right now. Because remember, the last time him and Abraham were together, Abraham lied to him about his wife. He dealt falsely with him, which almost got Abimelech killed. So he says, look, I want us to be pals, but I need you to swear to God. Uh, I need you to swear to God on this, that you will not break this agreement with me. 
And I just bring that up to say it is a very sad thing when our sin so damages our reputation that people have to ask for extra precautions just so they could trust us. That's not good. So try not to let your sin ruin your witness like that. Abimelech respected Abraham's God, but he still had reasons to question Abraham. Well, Abraham, he understands. He put himself in this situation, so he agrees to the request. In verse 24, Abraham, it says, and Abraham said, I swear it. Very short, verse 24. Um, so he says, yeah, we can make this, this covenant. And so then the only thing left after this would be the covenant ritual itself. And it would be identical to what you saw in chapter 15, where animals would be sacrificed, they'd be cut in pieces, you'd make two rows of them, and then both parties would walk in between the rows. And in a sense, what they're saying is, if I break my covenant with you, may I be destroyed like these animals. That's how they made covenants back then. They didn't sign contracts. They're like, no, we do this like men. You know, you break this one, you die. You know, so anyhow, um, that, was, that was what they were going to do. But here's the thing. Even though Abraham said, I swear it, they can't go straight to the ritual if there's grievances. They have to air out their grievances first. And Abraham has such a grievance. If you look at verse 25, it says, but Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well that Abimelech's servants had seized. See, apparently, Abraham did the hard work of digging a well, but it was stolen, so he wants it back. And definitely, I say kudos to Abraham for being bold rather than cowardly like he was the last time they met. He wouldn't even mention this as my wife. Now he's willing to say, hey, you stole my well, you know. So he's, he's, he's being bold. His, his faith is stronger now. It's showing his growth. But there's still more room for growth because if you look at verse 26, it says, Abimelech replied, I don't know who did this thing. You didn't report anything to me. So I hadn't heard about it until today. In other words, how am I supposed to know if you don't tell me? I could have made this right a long time ago. So here you now have another instance of Abraham's silence putting Abimelech in a situation where his ignorance now makes him guilty of something, guilty of a crime against Abraham. Okay, so Abraham should have told him before, but you know what? He's telling him now, and that's what matters. To his credit, he's like, well, I'm telling you now. Right? So the ball is in your court, Abimelech. You have an obligation to make this right, and then we can make our treaty. But remember, Abraham has lied to Abimelech before. So how can he know that Abraham's telling the truth about the well? Well, I think Abraham understands here that a damaged reputation brings extra costs. If you have a damaged reputation because you've proven yourself untrustworthy in the past, understand it's kind of like the person with a bad credit score has to get a second co-signer and they get a higher interest rate. And you might think, oh, that's so unfair. No, it's not. That's fair. Okay, that's your, that's your reputation because of your lousy credit. Okay, and likewise, Abraham realizes he has lousy credit with Abimelech, and so it's going to cost him a little bit, and he knows that. Rather than fight the reality of this, he gets ahead of it. Look at verse 27 through 30. Moses writes this. He says, Abraham took flocks and herds and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Okay, so that's the covenant there. But then verse 28, it says, Abraham separated seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech said to Abraham, why have you separated these seven ewe lambs? He replied, you are to accept the seven lambs from me so that this act will serve as my witness that I dug this well. 
because he knows his word isn't good enough anymore, right? So Abraham's like, look, I'm going to give you these seven lambs. Didn't make sense to the Philistine at first, but then Abraham clarifies. He says, to prove my story, because I know my word by itself, you have reason to question it. To prove my story is true about the well, I'm going to give you seven costly lambs. This sacrifice, this gift to you backs up my words. I just want the well back. And we can assume that Abimelech accepted the price and the well went back to Abraham. Now, the point of this account is then clarified in the rest of the text. Look at verses 31 and 32. It says, therefore, that place was called Beersheba because it was there that the two of them swore an oath. After they had made a covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, left and returned to the land of the Philistines. Now, Beersheba gets its name from this event. The word in Hebrew can mean two different things. It could mean the well of the oath, or it can mean the well of seven. The word bear means well, and Sheba either means seven or it means oath. It could mean either. Both of those titles are fitting. Abraham gave him seven lambs for the well, so it's the well of the seven. But it also tells us they swore an oath there, so it's the well of the oath. I think Moses is saying it's both. And remember, this area becomes the bottom border of Israel. So this is Moses giving us the foreshadowing of the land promise that 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 is now being worked out too. Abraham does in fact now have a little piece of the land, not the whole thing, but it's an already not yet type of situation, which is what our life is like in the kingdom now. Now, Abraham does here what he did in the north of Israel and in the center of Israel. He plants a tree, and then he builds an altar there, and he calls on the name of the Lord. Look at verses 33 and 34. Moses concludes, he says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham lived as an alien in the land of the Philistines for many days. Abraham, what he's doing here with this tree in this altar is he has now spiritually claimed all sections for the, uh, of the land for the Lord. He, in the north, he made an altar and had some trees. In the center, he did the same. And now in the bottom of the land he has. Again, they all these three areas now cover all the land that was promised to Abraham and his offspring. And Abraham has now done, the, done this throwback to the Garden of Eden with the altars and the trees. So yes, he is an alien in their land for a long time, but spiritually he is showing that he believes that God will keep the land promises too. He's blessed them, he's given them seed, and he knows he's gonna give them the land, hence the altars and the trees. And I love what Moses says here. He says, Abraham called on the name of the Lord. That's what he does at the other altars. But then it calls God the everlasting or eternal God. That is who God is. He's not like the false gods. Our God is the first and the last. He's eternal. He always was. He will always be. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And apart from him, there is no other. And Moses is telling us that right here. So anyway, all that concludes the text this evening. And I know it feels like we covered a lot. Moses gave us these two events in the life of Abraham to show us that God really does fulfill his promises. And so it's my prayer that we all believe this. It's also my prayer that we see the themes that permeate the entire chapter. But I have to say this, I will have failed my Lord if I don't at some point show you how this all points to Christ. We have to see Christ in the text. Remember, Jesus himself said the volume of scripture is all about him. 
And our passage tonight actually does show Messiah in two different ways. First, Christ is the ultimate seed of Abraham by which the world would be saved. Well, Jesus could not be born if God did not fulfill this promise to Abraham and make this special nation out of him. So this is one more step in God's story of how he brings the Savior into the world. Without the birth of Isaac, you can't have the more important birth of Jesus. Okay, and so that is one way this points to Jesus. But even more than this, in Matthew, I've been teaching you about types and shadows and how these Old Testament people, their lives kind of paint a picture of what the Messiah is going to be like. They form a pattern to where then when you see the Messiah, you're like, oh, it is him. It's the same thing here. Isaac is a type or shadow of Jesus. Notice, Isaac was the child of promise. It took a miracle for him to be conceived. And God's people, Abraham and Sarah, had to wait a long time for it to be fulfilled. Well, Jesus is the ultimate child of promise, and it took a far greater miracle for his conception. The Holy Spirit had to form his body in the womb of a virgin. And people had to, God's people had to wait a very long time for this child of promise, 4,000 years from the time the promise was made. Additionally, when Isaac was a toddler, there was a threat against him by someone seeking to usurp his position. When Christ was a toddler, Herod the Great, a usurper, also posed a threat against him. And even when we look at Abimelech here, we could see on a micro level what would eventually happen with Christ or Messiah. You have a Gentile king that pledges covenant loyalty to Abraham, who is a man of promise here. And this was to then bring blessings to the Gentile king and his nation. Well, in Messiah Jesus, all the Gentiles that surrender to him and pledge covenant loyalty to him in the new covenant are blessed beyond measure. So listen, when we read the Old Testament closely, we truly do see that it all points to Jesus in many ways. And so I hope that seeing Christ in all scripture encourages your heart. It definitely encourages mine. And there's one final encouragement I would like to to leave you with as well. When we look at the life of Abraham, we see how God grows him. And this shows us how God grows us too. God keeps sending a series of tests into his life. There has been this up and down movement with Abraham, but overall it's clear that he's growing. And if you're a real believer, same thing. You'll have tests, you'll have this up and down movement, but you'll grow in faithfulness. You'll be able to see it. The Abraham that once lied to foreign kings now speaks boldly to Abimelech here. The Abraham that didn't trust God to give him a child, so he brought in a third woman. He's now willing to send away a son because he knows God will take care of him. And in the next chapter, the biggest test imaginable is coming. And yet Abraham is going to pass that test. It is the same with us loved ones. We have a lot of moments of up and down progress. We have received many tests. We fail some and we win some. These lesser tests, when they come in your life, they feel like they're the biggest thing in the world at that time. Like, I don't know how I'm going to survive this, and I know I couldn't deal with something bigger than this. Well, yeah, at that time you couldn't. But, but here's the thing. God gets you through it, and then you grow, and then that prepares you for the bigger tests. And the next one comes, and it was even harder than the the one that came before. And even that one feels impossibly big. But God keeps getting you through it, even if you fail. 
He keeps getting you through it. And eventually you learn your lessons. And this isn't something that applies to the new believer as much as those who've walked for a while. But like Abraham walking for 25 years. When you've walked decades with God and you keep going through this cycle, your faith and your faithfulness grows. Like Abraham, our faithfulness increases and the tests just keep getting harder. But we learn what it means to wait. We learn from God that he will keep his promises in his timing. And that gives us just enough strength to be faithful during these tests. Like Abraham, we were saved the moment we believed, right? We were declared righteous by God. But after walking as pilgrims in this world for many years and many decades, our life and our works prove that our salvation is real. That, that is what James is getting at in James chapter 2 when he brings up Abraham's obedience as the proof of his justification. It is the same with us. Listen, we've been waiting a long time, loved ones. God has promised us a new heavens and a new earth. He's promised us a new Jerusalem where we will see God with our own eyes. God has promised us new bodies that are powerful and that will not break down. God has promised us a world where no one dies and we will never have to say goodbye again. God has promised there will be no more mourning and that he, would, he himself would wipe our tears away. Loved ones, that day is coming. Look at our text. God keeps his promises. He will keep these final promises he makes to us. So like Abraham, keep your eyes on God's faithfulness. Keep walking with God and keep persevering in Christ. Persevere because that day is coming. And if there's any unbeliever here, I just want to tell you, what did our text show? God is a promise keeper. That's what he is. That's what he does. And there's another thing he promised, the judgment to come, where Christ will come and make all things right by judging the wicked. That's another promise. He will save his elect, but he will judge the wicked. And as long as you are not in Christ, you are in your sins. And he promises he's going to judge you. The books will be opened. All your sins will be read to you. And it will be clear that you are guilty. And it will be clear that you deserve your condemnation. But God made a way of escape. The same one who comes as judge later came as savior 2,000 years ago. That the God-man came and he earned the righteousness we failed to earn. To where if you believe in him, you get the credit of his righteousness. And all your sins then get pinned on him. And he was nailed to the cross to pay our debt. And he died. And he rose on the third day. So if you turn from your sins and put your full faith in Jesus and you believe, then you'll be saved. You'll be declared righteous. And then God will continue to grow you throughout the rest of your life, just like we see with Abraham. So don't walk out of here still in your sin. We're going to pray. And then we're going to have one more song. Then we're going to have the Lord's Supper. And then we'll get out of here. So let's go to the Lord um, and in prayer. God, we just... Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for showing us what it means to be faithful, Lord, and, and, and to see that growing faithfulness. We thank you that you keep your promises. We thank you that you're going to keep the final promises to us. So, Lord, please let us keep our eyes on those promises, and may our faith grow, and may our faithfulness grow. And we just pray all this to you, God, and may you be glorified, and may the lost be saved. May we be encouraged by you, God, and we just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now,